Good morning. It is so good to be with you today. My name's Gav. I have the privilege of leading the Evangelical Alliance, which genuinely is a joy. And um, I don't know about you, but I find it annoying, unintelligent and somewhat crass when people use their sermons to advertise their ministry. It's just irritating, isn't it? <laughs> However, I'm just sensing you want to hear a bit more about the EA. So if it's okay, I'll do three minutes on the EA, then we'll move on. The Evangelical Alliance was started in 1846 with two aims that 176 years on remain our only two aims. Unite the church in its mission to the lost and give the church a clear and effective voice into every layer of society. But people say to me, what's an evangelical? Because let's be honest, the term needs a little redeeming. It's just not redundant. But it's quite simple. Four things. One, we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Stop changing scripture to baptise your culture and start changing your culture with the truth on the pages of the word of God. Secondly, we believe the death and resurrection of Jesus, single most important thing in human history. Thirdly, we believe in the need for conversion. People don't come to faith by osmosis. They get on their knees and they meet their saviour. And fourthly, we believe in the need to be active in the world, making the world more like the kingdom. That's why evangelicals in this country led the abolition of the slave trade, provided education before anyone else. In the last 30 years, have come up with and delivered Christians Against Poverty, food banks, street pastors. And the Evangelical Alliance is a membership organisation with the oldest and largest organisation representing the estimated couple of million evangelicals in the country. We're made up of over 3,000 churches like this one that are members of ours, 500 organisations and tens of thousands of individuals who come together to say, let's make Jesus known. And I have to be honest, it's the individual membership that's particularly important in this season because there's a growing scepticism in our corridors of power to the institutions at this moment. That's just life. That's, how, that's where we are. And people say, but what difference does it make? Well, I'll tell you something. We can speak with one voice. And let me be honest, our access to the corridors of power has been at a greater level than in living memory during the pandemic. And here's what the Prime Minister and his friends don't realise. They think it's easy to get us in the room. It's far harder to get us out again. So I'm not saying that we always get what we want, but we're in the room influencing at every layer of society on behalf of the church, speaking on behalf of this church and many other people too. People say, well, what difference does it make? Okay, um, there's a number of things we're working on at the moment, some very controversial, some not so controversial, but a number of things. But whilst we're working on them, we can't really talk about them in public, so I'm so sorry for that. But we can talk about things once they're done. So a few years ago, the government said they wanted to um, offstead all youth work and Sunday schools in churches. Do you remember that? Public regulation of private religion. When did you move to Saudi Arabia? And we just went into corridors of power and said, no, can't do this. It's an absolute infringement on religious liberty. There's no way you can do this. On behalf of our membership, no chance can you do this in this country. And do you know what? At least for now, it's kicked into the long grass. Why? Because we can say we stand as one and we believe as one and we go forward as one. So I unashamedly ask you this morning, would you consider filling in this little form at the end and becoming a personal member of the EA? It costs a cup of coffee a month to be a member of the EA. It's £3 a month to be a member of the EA as either an individual or as a couple. If you're married, don't even check with your spouse. Sign up as a couple. It counts as two when I go in and meet various people this week. In fact, this week we're in with the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. We could take your voice with us this week into there. And if you do sign up, I'll give you three presents. Why? I like you. Why else? Let me be honest, friends. I'm giving at least the next decade of my life to trying to unite evangelicals in reaching the lost, but to speaking up in every layer of society on behalf of the church. Here's the thing as well. 
The Evangelical Alliance is Marmite. We're either loved or hated. Those that hate us tell us regularly, particularly on social media, often late at night. But those that love us need to stand with us because the church has a huge part to play in this society. We need to do it. So I'll give you these three things, but if you need anything else, let me know. If you need a kidney, I'll even consider that. But, but firstly, unleash the Axe Church today. My wife Anne and I wrote this. What does it mean to be like the Axe Church, living in words, works and wonders, doing what we can to be the church of our day? Secondly, this booklet, six sessions for, sorry, seven sessions for individual or group study on unity. How can we be united that the world might know hope? Hope as a name, his name is Jesus. And finally, and if this doesn't swing the deal, I'm genuinely out of options. It's an EA key ring, bear with me. This at the top has our logo on, it's a fake detachable quid. When you need a supermarket trolley, you'll be so grateful you join the Evangelical Alliance. <laughs> When you need a locker at the gym, happy days. All I ask is each time you use it, would you pray with, you, with me the three things I pray each time I use mine? I pray that the Lord's church would be united in this nation. I pray that the voice of the church would be heard at every layer of society. And I pray that together we might make Jesus known. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I pray you'd forgive me for overselling in your house. But you know how pure the motive is, even if the method is a tad South London. But Lord, I do pray in the coming years that your church would be united. I do pray, Lord, that we would be heard. I thank you, Lord, for the access we've had to the corridors of power in the last couple of years. Might that just grow? I pray, Lord, that your church would play its part in the social and spiritual rebuilding of the United Kingdom post-pandemic. But I pray that many would come to know you. And Lord, as we turn to your word now this morning, I just pray you'd speak to us. Lord, whether it's through me or in spite of me, I don't really matter. But Lord, I pray you would speak. I pray you'd speak powerfully. And I pray we'd have fun. Why should your church gather and not have fun at this family gathering? Would we have fun? So as I share with my friends over the next 19 or 20 hours or so, we just invite you to speak, Lord. Amen. So I guess one of the questions is, how should we live in this season? Not the pandemic season. The pandemic isn't totally done, but that's a bit yesterday. I actually think as the church, we need to move on a little bit. Because everywhere I go, people say, this many people came before the pandemic, this many after. We're starting to sound like old people talking about the war. <laughs> there comes a point at which we've got to just deal with what's in front of us, not keep reflecting on what's been. But, but we do have to own the fact it's been a hard season. It's been a hard season. But the interesting thing for me with COVID is, I think most of my Christian friends are sleepier in their faith than they were before the pandemic. I think as a church... We've gone to sleep a little bit and we need to wake up and be alive. At the same time, I do not know a non-Christian who's not more interested in Jesus than they were before the pandemic. They're not queuing up to surrender their lives to Jesus, but they are all more interested. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that the COVID was quite bad for the saved. It sent us to sleep a little, but was the start of a spiritual awakening for the lost. And I don't want us to miss that moment. I also believe this is a moment for a courageous church. I was at the last New Wine that happened in person and the speaker at the front was saying that if you want to be distinct within culture, come to the front, we want to pray for you. I'll be honest, I don't often respond to talks. I'm usually giving them. And it's the height of preaching arrogance to be the first person to respond to your own message. But on this occasion, I'm at the front of this tent and I feel the Lord say to me, you need to be braver in this next season. Now, forgive me, my sinful nature looked around the tent of 6,000 others and I said, Lord, I'm doing all right compared to most of these. 
And I felt the Lord say, don't look sideways, look upwards. You need to be braver. And I stood there at the front of that tent. I did something I don't do very often. I tend to only do it when England lose a penalty shootout. I began to cry and really cry. Why? Not because I'm not prepared to be brave, but it's hard to be brave. I want everyone to love me. I want everyone to think I'm brilliant. But sometimes when you're called to be brave, you've got to stand out. And let's get something else clear. Brave people aren't born. We think people are born brave. They're not. You're given an opportunity to be brave. Esther's the bravest person I can find in scripture. When she goes to see the king, she risks the most radical of haircuts. She could have had her head chopped off just for turning up. But she does it because she's brave. We're being given a chance to be brave. Will we step into it? So, so when I finished crying, I told my wife, I didn't tell anyone else. It came to the last night of the school holidays. We sat praying with our two kids. When we pray with our kids, we always leave a moment of silence at the end, a few minutes for Jesus to speak. Because prayer is not a monologue, it's a conversation. And after a couple of minutes, my daughter says, Dad, this is really weird. It's really weird, Dad. But Jesus wants you to be braver. I'm like, all right, Lord, I get the message. Within a few months, I've taken on leading the Evangelical Alliance, which, if I'm honest, is the greatest privilege of my life, but it's also about as much fun as it sounds. It's very difficult to actually walk around carrying that badge every day in a world where there's a secular tsunami. But the time has come for the church to stand up, act up, and speak up. And when I took on leading the EA, I felt the Lord say two things. You're going to have to be braver in this next decade than this ministry's ever been. Friends, the church has got to hold its nerve. We've got to not just capitulate to the, to the secularism around us, which, by the way, offered zero hope in a, in a pandemic and offers zero hope in a cost of living crisis. Hope comes from Jesus. But alongside being braver, I also felt the Lord say we've got to be kinder in the next decade than we've ever been. Now, we need to redeem kindness because the world's understanding of kindness is never correcting anything, never challenging anything, never having a view on anything. Just saying to someone, whatever you are and however you are, that's cool. That's not kindness. People say you can't change anyone. I don't understand. I'm a new creation, no more in condemnation. The whole point of me coming to Jesus was that I'd be transformed into his likeness. Frankly, I needed changing. And we're living in this day where kindness means treating everyone as a divine image bearer. Treating everyone in the way the Lord would treat them. Whereas if you took the world's view of kindness, your children wouldn't have any hands. Because when they put them in the fire, you can't say no. Because that's unkind. Friends, that's crazy. What we need is a brave and a kind church stepping up and stepping out. And it's going to cost us. I think we love telling stories from around the world, don't we? We love talking about Iran and China. Iran's the fastest growing church in the world, by the way. Amazing stuff going on in Iran. But we kind of want Iranian results with UK comfort. And I don't think those two things go together. I think as it gets more uncomfortable, we start seeing amazing things. You know, it's my very first week in this role. I got interviewed by a secular journalist. First question, why is the church dying? I said, I've never heard so silly a question in all my life. I said, more people gave their lives to Jesus yesterday than any day since he rose from the dead. And if you want better news still, more people will give their lives to Jesus today than did yesterday. In fact, forgive me for being a little... Um, confident in this but I've never felt so much on the winning side as I do right now Christianity is growing more than it's ever done how on earth could you think the church is dying she said why is the UK church dying I said that's a different question I said you see there's not a section in heaven for British people there's just brothers and sisters now don't get me wrong friends I long to see it here as much as anyone I know but we've got to take a global picture too 
that the church has never grown so fast. And we've got to allow that to give us the confidence in the gospel that we may have lost. Because now is a key moment in the UK. So if you've got a Bible, would you turn it on? (laughs) I've bought my paper version today. We're going to go to John chapter 20. If it's any help to you, it's page 933 in my Bible. And we're just going to read from verse 11 of John 20. It says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked the woman, Why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise it was Jesus. He asked a woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking it was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Then verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to them, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I just want to suggest four things that we should be doing as a church in this moment. This moment, not pandemic, this post-pandemic moment of opportunity for the church. Four ways that we should be holding ourselves that Jesus models wonderfully here when he's resurrected from the dead. The first is this. He breaks all the rules. Jesus breaks all the rules. Now, some of you see that sign and you think, perfectly sensible, I will keep off the grass. Some of you are like me. Even if you've got brand new white trainers, you see that sign and you feel compelled to go on the grass. We're all built differently. But I think as a church, we're good at making rules, not necessarily breaking them. I remember when I went to Capernaum. Capernaum is where Jesus spent a lot of time living with Peter and Peter's mother-in-law. That makes me feel sorry for Jesus. To have to live with a mother-in-law with none of the benefits of marriage just seems like a double loss. Anyway, different issue. And I went to visit Capernaum, and on the way into Capernaum, there's a big sign that says, unless your skirt or shorts go below the knee, you can't come in. Now, I was there with my family. My family all went in. Now, I'm six foot three. So my shorts rarely go below my knee. They were about an inch above my knee. They would not let me into Capernaum. I'm like, I've come all this way. I've got to get in. So I went back to the car park. Now, I started to think, what can I do? Fortunately, I did 14 years at Youth for Christ before I worked for the EA. I'm down with the kids. So I did something that is disgusting that teenage boys do. I've never done it before or since. You know the whole boxer shorts above the trousers thing? I basically just pulled my shorts down two inches. And I went back. And the same guy on the same door let me in. Welcomed me to Capernaum. Three metres into Capernaum, I pulled my shorts back up and I've never done it since. Friends, we must not make rules that superficially stop people getting to Jesus. 
We must not put up barriers that don't need to be there. In this passage, Jesus does not work within social constraints. Social constraints would say, don't appear to a woman. Now, don't hear me wrong. It's not what I'm saying about my view. I'm saying about the time that Jesus was ministering it. You could, if, I, if I killed someone and only a woman witnessed it, I would get off. Because the testimony of a woman was not considered worthy in court. The average Pharisee woke up every day and thanked the Lord that they were not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Yet your Jesus, my Jesus, appears to a woman. The first person to hear of the resurrection is a woman, and not just any woman, Mary Magdalene, who's had seven demons driven out of her. Because Jesus does not allow the rules that that culture have made that are wrong get in the way of him sharing his message. And I guess I'd just say to you, what rules do you need to break as a church? Maybe they're rules of generational differences or or there's some people in your community that aren't loved, but let's not allow the rules the culture sets us to determine what we do or don't do as church because we believe in a Jesus who brings liberation here to Mary Magdalene. So let's break some rules that need breaking. But secondly, Jesus is full of surprises. I love this because I think people think the church is predictable. I think people think they've got the measure of us. You know, whenever the church is is represented on a TV show, it's not always done justice, is it? But actually, we should be surprising people, not predictable. But four surprises from Jesus. First one, what is the very first thing he does earlier in John 20 when he's resurrected from the dead? He starts folding up dirty washing. Mary and Joseph clearly raised him really well. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He was buried in two sheets. He's resurrected. First thing he does is he folds up one of the sheets. However, he doesn't fold the second one. So at some point he thinks, hang on, I'm the resurrected creator of the cosmos. I've got slightly more important things to be doing than folding up dirty sheets. But it's quite a surprise, isn't it? But second surprise, the incarnation I think we as a church get familiar with things that we need to get unfamiliar with. What I mean by that is we're so used to the story or so used to the message that we're not inspired by it. The fact that that the God who threw the stars into space became a person for you and I is unbelievably world-changing. Third surprise, the resurrection. Now here's where it gets really exciting. He was dead, he's now alive. You know, it's an unbelievable moment. You know, I don't don't know if you've ever really asked the Lord, but I ask the Lord every morning, remind me what I'm saved from so I could be dangerous for you today. Because there's nothing like a new Christian, is there? Infectiously, passionately talking about Jesus. I want to be like a new Christian every day in that way. I don't want to come to a point of maturity where I'm like, I don't need to just let this spill out. I want it to overflow. I want to lead people to Jesus at a service station on the way home. Why? Because I want to be talking about him, not just in here, but out there. And the resurrection's a massive surprise. I don't know if you've ever seen a dead body, but when someone's dead, they're really gone. Jesus was dead. He's now alive. You know, let's just just frame this for a minute. We're used to the gospel message, but it's world-changing. So I talked about the incarnation. Because of our sin and brokenness, Jesus, who is God, comes from highest heaven to lowest earth, grows into a man giving food to the hungry, health to the sick, life to the dead. Dies upon a cross, taking every wrong thing upon himself that you've ever done, ever could do, ever might do, that you could know life in all its fullness now as well as for eternity. Don't get me wrong, life after death sounds amazing, but I don't know how I get through tomorrow without Jesus. 
I think sometimes we, we focus too much on what happens when you die, and some people feel they'll never die. What about now? And they threw him in a grave. I've been to the garden tomb. It was designed for Joseph of Arimathea. He was little. Jesus was tall. By the feet, they dug out a bit to fit Jesus' body in. They did it really quickly. I don't know why they did that. Now that I'm middle-aged, I know that any home improvements should be a sensible fiscal decision for the long term. Not just for three nights where it's a dead body anyway. But you go into that tomb, he is not there for he has risen. Your Jesus, my Jesus, defeated death that we might know life. That is world-changing. We mustn't get overly familiar with it. Fourth surprise. He walks through a wall. This is amazing stuff. He walks through a wall. How else does he get to the disciples? No door is broken. No window's broken. No wall's broken. He must walk through the wall. Surprise, disciples, here I am. Full of surprises. And I think as a church, as well as breaking rules, it's time we started surprising people. Surprising people with our mercy, our love, our compassion. We've just done a massive survey called Talking Jesus at the EA of 4,000 people in the UK. You know what? When people don't know a Christian, they think we're judgmental, hypocritical, homophobic and nasty. When people know a Christian, they think we're caring, godly, faithful and excellent friends. Do you know what we've got to do? We've just got to make friends. Every time you make friends with someone and you tell them you're a Christian, you'll surprise them. Because you are not what they expected. And we need to go out on a limb surprising people. Let's surprise people with our style of church too. Every church in the UK pre-pandemic, half ten, half six. Nothing to do with Jesus, everything to do with milk. Used to get the milk at nine in the morning, get the milk at five in the afternoon. Half an hour to get the milk, half an hour to get clean, half an hour to get to church. Nothing sacred about it at all. Don't get me wrong, if half ten works for you, crack on. But let's not be trapped into models that aren't sacred. If we need to do things differently, do them differently. Going into the pandemic, I felt the church was like a set menu. Let's be a buffet now. You don't change the substance, but the style can innovate. And let's be open to God's surprises. Because it's not just Jesus that's full of surprises. Scripture's full of surprises, isn't it? Some of them, amazing. The parting of the sea. Don't you wish you'd been there when Moses saw the sea part? Two questions for me. How soggy is the ground? (laughs) Secondly, what if there's a massive fish? Did that split in half? Anyway. But some of the surprises in Scripture, I've got questions about for Jesus when I get to heaven. Water into wine. They've been drinking for four days, Jesus. Was that really the moment to make the best stuff? Anyway. Breaks the rules, full of surprises. But thirdly, I think it's a real time for us to be compassionate. It's a real time for us to be compassionate. I get crossed at first reading that Mary doesn't recognise Jesus. It doesn't feel fair, does it? I'm supposed to hear God's voice when I can't see him. He's there. But when you dig a bit deeper, you work out, firstly, she's been mourning for three nights. When you've been mourning and really weeping, your eyes go a bit fuzzy, don't they? When you're really uncontrollably crying, your eyes go a bit fuzzy. Also, we know she's standing this way, Jesus behind her, so she's got fuzzy eyes. Then she would have had long hair. All women would have had long hair in that day. This is a day before as well, no L'Oreal because you're worth it. Her hair would have been fairly unkept. Then when you add to it, she's mourning, it would be even more unkept than normal. So she's got fuzzy eyes and hair stuck to her face. And she looks over her shoulder and makes out a male figure. It becomes understandable why she doesn't recognise him. But she recognises him when he calls her 
Mary. No. He calls her Miriam. You're saying, what are you talking about, Gav? Well, here's the thing. Miriam is Mary in Aramaic. There is no way she would answer in Aramaic if he didn't speak in Aramaic. So our English translation here is chosen to bring half the Aramaic forward, not the other half. The reason this is important is as follows. They're in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, everyone speaks Hebrew. Hebrew is the language of the educated. No one would dare speak Aramaic in Jerusalem because that would make you seem uneducated. However, Aramaic was the language of the Galilean region, which was less educated. So Jesus speaks to her in Aramaic because he's the only person who'd be secure enough in his identity to speak to her in a way that only she would understand and know his compassion was directly for her in that moment. When he calls her Miriam, he's literally speaking to her in a way that no one else ever would as he calls her individually with the kind of compassion she needs in that moment. It's unbelievably powerful. And I think right now, we need, desperately need compassion for those around us. We need to ask the Lord for more compassion for those around us. But we can't have a formula for compassion. Jesus didn't treat anyone the same. And we, this, this old quote keeps going around, doesn't it? We've all been in the same storm, but not the same boat. That's really true. I know it's cheesy, but it's really true, isn't it? I've got some friends that now have savings accounts who had no savings before the pandemic. I've got other friends who literally don't know how they're going to feed their kids. Same storm, different boat. And we've got to ask the Lord for the right compassion for each person in each moment. We've also got to know the Lord does not compare us to others, so let's not do that with others. The Lord calls us all individually. The other great joy for me is when you look at Scripture, you realise that you have to be, in the world's eyes, probably unworthy to be used by God in order to be used by God. You know, we need compassion for some of the people in our community right now doing some of the most ungodly things might be some of the people the Lord most wants to use in the future. If you want evidence of that, look who God uses. Noah plants his own vineyard and gets mashed up on his own wine. Abraham was too old to be used. Jacob was a liar. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair and was a murderer. Jonah ran from God. The disciples fell asleep whilst praying. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once and Lazarus was dead. Yet God used them all powerfully. We need compassion as we reach people, but also compassion for the fact that God can then do amazing things in and through them. I also believe as the church we need compassion for each other. So it's not just an outward-looking thing, it's an inward-looking thing too. Because if failure is never final with God, it can never be final with us. One of the negatives of the job I have is I know most of the rubbish of the church in the country. That's quite a difficult thing to carry around, if I'm honest. But when you dig deeply into any of the rubbish, take it back to its root. The root's not a big deal. What happens is the little thing's allowed to grow. It's a bit like, um, you know when you see little tigers being hand-fed a bottle of milk and they look really cute? It's like a moving, cuddly toy. You think, I want one of them. They're really lovely. Isn't it cute? I'd love a little tiger that moves around. If you keep that little tiger... It grows into a massive big tiger that mauls you. If we deal with stuff when it's small, it doesn't destroy things. Church splits, relational problems, all come from something small that's allowed to fester. Reminds me of in marriage. I, I've been married for 21 years this summer. Got married when I was three. And um, remember in our wedding prep, they said, never go to bed on an argument. Say sorry sometimes, even when it's not your fault. 
I know all about this. Because for the last 21 years, I have forever been saying sorry, and it's very rarely been my fault. <laughs> Not true. But can you imagine if family church never went to bed in an argument? Even the little thing, the little thing that annoys you, that's where we need to show compassion. Sorry needs to be the quickest word to come out of our mouths because the evil one gets a foothold when we don't have good relationships with each other. So even today, there's going to be one or two people here, you need to say sorry to someone before you go home. Just deal with it. Even if it doesn't mean anything to them, deal with it because in your heart, you want your heart to be pure and you want to feel compassion for one another. So compassion is in the family. We don't go to bed on an argument. But compassion is then reaching others. We treat everyone individually and ask for the compassion needed for them. So we break the rules, full of surprises. We're compassionate. Finally, we're faithful. John eleven sixteen. Thomas says, let us go that we might die with you. It's ironic, isn't it, that Thomas then goes wandering. Now, let's hang on for a minute. We need to go easy on the disciples, you know. According to the late John Stott, they were aged 15 to 22. So when Jesus wants to change the world, he starts a youth group. Now, could you just put your hand up if you wish your teenage years were written down in the most read book in human history? We have to go easy on them. Nonetheless... Thomas has made this big statement, let us go that we might die with you. But then he goes wandering and misses out on Jesus' visit. But Jesus is so faithful that he comes back for him. Even in Thomas's unfaithfulness, Jesus comes back for him. And we are called to be faithful as Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful in Gethsemane too. You know, I find when he prays in Gethsemane, that is the most comforting bit of scripture for me. Why? Jesus, who has the most intimate relationship with the Father that anyone's ever had, asks three times not to go to the cross. And he still has to do it. I find that so comforting. There's no such thing as unanswered prayer, but there certainly is not getting the answer you wanted. But he's faithful in that moment. He was sweating blood in Gethsemane, yet he still goes. We live in an unfaithful culture. When I was growing up, the most successful shop at the end of the road was the TV repair shop. Now, if your TV is 4K HD, slimline, whatever, if it breaks, you throw it away. My mum used to have a hanger with a load of zips on. So when the zip broke on your trousers, she would sew a new zip on. I don't know who does that anymore, and I don't know where you get trousers made well enough that they haven't all fallen apart before the zip breaks. We don't stick at anything anymore. I've even noticed this couple of my friends' Christian marriages where the guy said on two different occasions, two different guys, I'm leaving her. I'm like, why? He says, well, I'm not sure I love her anymore. I'm like, love is not a feeling, it's a choice. We're living in this instant culture where the minute you're not happy, you walk away. You know, the, the number one album in the charts till recently was Adele's recent album that she's written so that a two-year-old son can understand her divorce in the future years because he needs to know through these songs that the most important thing in her life is her own personal happiness. The evil one is lying to us. The world does not revolve around us and our happiness. It's a faithfulness to the creator that will give you great satisfaction and the ability to be fulfilled in life. But we're living in an unfaithful culture. Have you noticed the only thing anyone sticks at their whole life is their football team? And unless they picked AFC Wimbledon in the first place, they got it wrong. Because Jesus supports Wimbledon. I know that because he cares about the marginalised, those who've been mistreated, and he's got a special place in his heart for those who've been forced to live in exile. But, But it's not okay to accept a culture 
where everything's instant. We're called to be faithful. So do you know what? Christianity 101, stick with Jesus the rest of your life. That's the, that's the first thing. As a church, don't have an evangelistic strategy about opening the front door till you've closed the back one. We've got to make sure we're doing all we can to be faithful because that will speak powerfully. If you stick with Jesus the rest of your life, that will send such a message to those around you. And you know, some of you will be thinking, how do I share my faith at work? I tell you what, you talk about Jesus. If you want any further advice on that, on the EAUK website, there's a resource called Speak Up. Speak Up is written by the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. It just reminds people that in the United Kingdom, you have more legal freedom to share your faith at work than any other nation on earth. The only thing that stops us is we're chickens. Here's the thing, though. Use our freedoms or we lose them. Do you know something else as well? In the workplace, you've got more legal protection if you talk about your faith more often than if you talk about it less often. Because the more important a component of your life it is, the more it is protected as a characteristic in law. Isn't that interesting? Now, you never get told this when you hear some story in a newspaper, but friends, we can crack on being faithful to the Jesus who's faithful to us, speaking about him. So we need to break the rules, full of surprises, compassionate and faithful. And then just to finish, and this bit to finish is the only bit I'll share at Skelmer's Day or later as well, because I'll tell you something, I'll share this anywhere I can until we've run out of time. Because right now we are living in the greatest evangelistic moment of my lifetime. The nation is living with mortality salience. Mortality salience is an awareness of your brokenness. It's normally reserved for a war zone. Before the pandemic, if you thought you were going to get too old, you'd get a new moisturiser. During the pandemic, people didn't think they could hide their fragility. They thought they might die. So even though most of us were sat on sofas or doing key worker jobs, not in a war zone, we were asking the same questions you'd normally ask in a war zone. So the nation's living with that. The people around you are asking the questions you've been answering for 30 years when they weren't asking them. But they're asking them afresh. This is the moment right now to share. I got asked to write the foreword to a book on evangelical church history, 1900 to 1950. I've got to be honest, right? I get asked to do some things in my job that sound like a privilege. It was hard work. It was a deep book. I had to Google thesaurus out to understand it. But there was one bit in the book that really profoundly stuck with me. At the end of the Second World War, church attendance in the United Kingdom was off the charts for 18 months, hugely up. After 18 months, it went back down below pre-Second World War levels. The diagnosis in the book was this. The church spent 18 months getting itself comfortable, happy and okay again. And by the time the church had sorted itself out, the lost had gone somewhere else. Friends, this is the moment now to posture ourselves towards the lost. We've not been through a war, but we've been through the biggest thing since. It won't be in our church buildings. It'll be over garden fences, digital spaces, sports clubs, workplaces. But now is the moment to be sharing the hope we have with people. I would hate for church history to say of us that we did the same. We spent long enough getting ourselves comfortable that by then people had moved on. Because people right now are more open to the gospel than they've been at any time. And we mustn't miss this moment. And people say, yeah, but I'm fragile. Yeah, we are all fragile. Let's own that. I've never felt so fragile in all my life. I've also never felt so hopeful. But let me be honest with you. I don't trust anyone that doesn't walk with a limp. Because if you don't walk with some pain, you're either delusional or you live in Disneyland. And the thing for me that motivates me is the pandemic has been so hard, but how much harder would it be without Jesus? Imagine having had the last two or three years without Jesus. So therefore, I'm going to posture myself to those who haven't had Jesus, speak of the hope I have in him, but do it in an authentic way that says, I also do feel fragile. Because it's when we do Christian superheroes that no one wants to listen. 
But when we do authentic Christianity that says, do you know what, it's been a pile of pants, but I've stood on the rock of ages, and that's given me hope in the midst of this challenge, people are drawn to that. And I'm the kind of person that will speak to anyone about Jesus. Frankly, sometimes I think if there were no people around, I'd start trying to convert the lampposts. I'm just driven that way. But even in this season, I'm noticing the response levels are just off the charts compared to normal. People are looking for hope. I'll give you two examples. I've gone to the same barber for seven years. I live in northwest London. That means you pay too much for everything, including your haircut. It's not done well, it's not hard, it's just expensive. And my view was, if you're going to charge me that, I'm going to have a right go at telling you about Jesus every time I'm in. For the first six years, I got absolutely nowhere. Then I went in after the first lockdown. My barber says this, wow, I'm pleased to see you. I've never wanted to talk about God so much. We spent the next hour and a half talking about Jesus. He's not given his life to Jesus yet, by the way. I think some of our stories can't just be, and then they became a Christian. We've got to actually talk about the journey for some people. But every time I've gone in, we've had amazing chats. Last time I was in, we talked about Judgment Day for an hour. I've given him a link to an online alpha. This guy was closed as closed can be. He's now open as open can be. Why? Because of what he's been through. Second one, I was at a funeral. This lad comes towards me. He's 25, very athletic, incredibly muscly. As he walks towards me, it's like looking in a mirror. And he comes towards me. <laughs> I don't get the joke. Anyway, um, and he starts having a go at me. Your wife, you and your wife used to do a programme on TBM. Why have you stopped it? My mum loved it and she's crossed with you for stopping it. I'm like, I'm really sorry, mate. We can't do everything, so we can't really do it at the moment. No, she's not happy. You've got to start doing it again. When are you going to do it? I'm really sorry, mate. We can't do it. He says, all right, well, let me tell you something. He says, during the second lockdown, I got so bored that I watched four episodes of my mum and I gave my life to Jesus. And you know what? Let me be honest. Those shows were not evangelistic. Just chatting about a Bible passage. Because of Ofcom, you're not allowed to do a gospel appeal. But there's something in the air that's making a difference at the moment. People are more open. This is the moment. The prodigal you've given up on, start again. The person you've prayed for for 10 years, you haven't. This is day one. This is day one of a new evangelistic endeavour. Why? Because the landscape's different. The person you've invited to six things and it's been six no's. Treat it like you've never invited them. This is our moment. We have prayed for revival. We have believed for change. And I'm not saying we're living in revival. We're not. But the circumstances are there where it's possible. And what would be such a shame is we spent so long making sure we were okay. And forgot the fact that actually in the end we're signposts to hope. And hope is the name. His name is Jesus. Final thing I'll use to encourage you. I mentioned talking Jesus research before. We did this last in 2015. It's the biggest research in the country on what Christians, what, what non-Christians think about Christians and what they think about the church and whether they're interested in hearing about Jesus. When we did it in 2015, everyone got really excited. Archbishop Justin got really excited and did this leather shoelace thing because, because one in five of your non-Christian friends wanted to know more about Jesus. And there were five knots. I don't know if any of you did this. Five, pray for your five knots was the aim. Pray for the five. Pray for the five. One in five wants to know about Jesus. Let me tell you something. Throw that shoelace away if you've got one. Because we've just done it again. It's not one in five. It's one in three. One in three non-Christians want to know more about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And so what we need to do, friends, is go forward. Do what we can. Make Jesus known together. As a brave church that breaks the rules, is full of surprises, is compassionate and faithful. But you know what? If you don't like the evangelism word, forget that. But let's all be witnesses in this moment. Because hope is a name, his name is Jesus. And we want to point others to him. Let's pray, shall we? We've all just got our eyes shut for a moment. I just, 
every school report I ever had, apart from PE, had three words on it. Could do better. Not should do better even, just could do. And I think it's easy to say, let's go from not really witnessing to being Billy Graham, but that's just not going to happen. I just wonder if for some of us we want to ask the Spirit of God, can you help us? We feel like, I feel like I could do better, Lord, help me. And that's in witnessing, it's in loving people, it's in speaking up of the hope you have, it's in praying for the lost. But just in this season, as a church, this is the moment where if we all did do a bit better, we might see amazing fruit. So if you're able, in a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand, if you, if you want me to pray for you, that, that you could do better, that you could do better in your witnessing, you'd love the Lord to anoint and equip you in your witnessing. This could be quite a key moment, because I really believe that the ground has never been this ripe for harvest. Now's the moment. So if you'd love the Lord to equip you to do better and you're able, would you just stand with me, please? I'm going to pray in a moment, but I just want to encourage you that sometimes we make God small enough that we're comfortable with him, but God could do anything. And it took a youth group of 12 that I alluded to before, which, by the way, 75% success rate. One doubted him, one denied him, one betrayed him. So go easy on yourself sometimes. But that youth group changed the world. There's a few more here. Let's extend our prophetic imaginations for what God could do in this area. So, Lord Jesus, I just pray. I just pray that you would give us a boldness Give us a boldness we perhaps didn't come into this room with this morning. A supernatural boldness. Lord, please help us not to forget the kindness too, but give us a boldness. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would give us confidence in your gospel. In fact, we take a moment to remember those who signposted us towards you. It won't be one person, Lord, it'll be a number of people. And we thank you for them. In fact, let's do that just where we are. Let's, let's start thanking the Lord for those who were witnesses to us. Thank you for my parents, Lord, and the message I gave. Thank you. thank you for Sandy, my football coach, Lord, and the way he pointed me towards you. Jesus, thank you. Lord, we long to be those people to others. We long to play our part in your great adventure. So we say, Spirit of the living God, would you fall afresh on your people today? Would you fall afresh with a spirit of boldness, with a can-do attitude, Grow our prophetic imaginations. Lord, please. For some of you, I feel the Lord just wants to bring hope back to situations you thought were hopeless. Particularly on those you've given up on ever coming back to the Lord or coming to the Lord for the first time. Might today be day one of praying for that friend, that prodigal, that neighbour. I really believe the Lord wants to bring back hope. Believe the Lord wants this as well, to be, a, to be a praying church when it comes to the lost. Who's on your prayer list, your daily prayer list? Who do we celebrate together? In this house, the Lord wants to welcome many more people. But he wants this to be a team effort, not an individual effort. The days of superhero evangelists never worked and they're not the future. It's a team game. And the Lord wants to raise that in this place. I just believe it'd be great for Pastor Stephen to come and pray because actually I'm not here next week and this could be quite a moment for us as a church as we, as we simply say to the Lord, Lord, I could do better, help me do better. I want to witness for you and I know that you promise to be with me as I step out.
Praise the Lord. Just stay in an attitude of prayer. That was great, wasn't it? We can relax, by the way, when we're being spiritual. We don't have to work ourselves up. Um, I have to say that one of the things, and there's so many things that stuck out to me in that moment, was the moment when he talked about the success rate of Jesus and his team, but the fact that they changed the world. And then he referenced the number in this room. Every life, every heart, every difference in this room is valuable to God. I love the way Gav instructed us to grow in our evangelism. Maybe it's simply this, that you won't be ashamed of Jesus in your workplace. That's step forward number one. Maybe for some people, you'll have an opportunity to pray for someone. They tell you a story, they share with you something that is bothering them, and you offer gently to pray for them. All of this is evangelism. And eventually, like the hairdresser, I have lots of hairdressers that have heard the gospel. Eventually, people come in step by step. And we can relax because actually it's only God who saves. Our job is to share the truth. Jesus is the one who saves. And so let's believe the Lord to do what we can't, which is to convert souls. We can't, through an argument or through our own spirituality, make things happen. Only Jesus can save. And so... Our, our orientation now in this moment, say, Lord, I want to be used to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Proclaim the truth of the gospel. When we were in my office earlier, Gav, Gav was telling me about a radio conversation with two humanist professors who were both very, very bright. And these humanist professors offered no hope for all of their contemplations of the present state of the world where we are now in the COVID landscape and emerging from the COVID landscape. They had nothing to offer the world. One thing that we can be resolute on as a church, however you're feeling, is we have the hope of the world. We have the best thing in, in history, Jesus. And so wherever you're feeling now, however you're feeling in this moment, we can leave with the confidence that Christ himself is in us. Christ himself in us. And so let me pray for you that the Spirit of God would come upon you to be a witness in the nations and this nation. I'll, I'll take anyone on an evangelism trip, but there's not only one mode of evangelism. The main reason we do and proclaim the gospel is because Jesus sent us out. But every day, every moment, every street, every workplace, you are on duty for Jesus. So it's always a moment to redeem the moment. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would comfort those who are hurting in this room today. Father, I pray that peace would come upon hearts and lives. Lord, I pray that backs would be healed in this room today, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would restore lost hope in this room today, as Gav was saying. Lord, I pray that there would be no more sense of bereavement, no more sense of loss that cannot be retrieved, but that, God, you would bring a new beginning in this house today. And Lord, as we orientate ourselves to be uh, gospel proclaimers, people who proclaim the truth about a risen Lord Jesus, Father, help us do it well. Help us do it intelligently. Help us do it clearly. Help us relax into it and enjoy it, this privilege of sharing the good news in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room would leave feeling encouraged and equipped to say, you know what, I'm a follower of Jesus, I believe in Jesus, and see you move in their lives. Lord, I pray that even this week, there would be testimony coming to the front of the platform next Sunday after it, Lord, that the people in this room had shared Jesus where they are. Amen. 
I love that shared Jesus thing that Gavin shared, the way they're contesting for the freedoms of the church. Who feels emboldened to share Jesus in the workplace, having heard what Gavin just said? I, I can see yeah, Andrew at the back there and Sam. And I think sometimes we believe the rhetoric of the enemy. It's like wartime propaganda. The media puts a story out and then we think, oh, well, I have to stay silent. Isn't it reassuring to hear that voice that you can share Jesus where you are? Thank you, Gavin. Thank you to the EA. Uh, I know you're the representative here for, for, doing, for contending for that, for the church. It's such a privilege to have this relationship. I encourage you to sign up for the individual membership of the EA if you're willing to do that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant organization. I didn't know it was as old as it was. And uh, I love those fundamentals that it was built on. Um, we, we really do need to strengthen our relationship with the AA. Family Church, nearly about 50 years old-ish. We've been with the AA for most of our journey. And we're so proud and privileged to be a part of the Evangelical Alliance. I'm going to finish the service there, but I will pray for anyone who needs prayer. I do believe the Lord wants to touch some bodies. Didn't intend to pray about backs then, but if you're struggling with your back, the Lord will move upon you and touch you, I believe. Amen. Isn't it good to have so many great people like Gav coming in who share evangelism? We don't have to do it the Steve Kerry way all the time. Gav, Gav Calver knows many evangelists. Um, Gary Gibbs has been here. Um, Mark Greenwood. Different to my style, but all important styles. And the way that they equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, to be Jesus' people. It's wonderful, isn't it? Praise the Lord. Thank God for his church. Amen. Are you happy? You look happy. That's good to see. If you can come to Schem Church at 4.30, we'd really enjoy your company. Uh, support the folks there. Otherwise, have a great Sunday. And uh, this will definitely go online. Great, great ministry. Bless you. Have a great Sunday, everyone.